Well, it's a, it's a real honor uh, to be in front of you this morning, uh, preaching God's Word and, and walking through God's Word together. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to do so. But I'm also extremely thankful, as Pastor Frank just said, for the opportunity to come here full-time and uh, go into ministry. I have felt this calling for quite some time now, and the confirmation just kept getting greater and greater uh, in my heart. And I just want to say thank you to the church, thank you to the elders, the staff, the uh, stewardship team, personnel teams, everybody who went into giving me the opportunity to do so. I can't tell you how thankful I am for that, and um, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that you made the right decision. Of course, that's God's control, and I will be seeking Him thoroughly uh, throughout this process. So just really from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Well, it's also an honor for me to get to preach through Romans today. This is something I've been very much looking forward to. Um, when Pastor Frank said that we would have the opportunity to do this, um, I just felt very excited because the book of Romans is just an absolutely powerful book. It seems as though Paul is taking that church of Rome and he's taking them into a deeper theology, a theology that they can grasp and grow into. And we know that when we study God's Word and we grow deeper in our love for Him, or excuse me, when we grow deeper in our theology, our, our learning of who He is, we fall in more, more in love with Him, and we grow closer to Him. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here in the book of Romans, and that's why it's so powerful. So I'm picking up in chapter 6 and 7 today, so if you want to turn to Romans 6, starting, starting in chapter 6, uh, that's where we'll begin. Now, I'm going to bounce around to different places, uh, but if you want to keep your finger on chapter 6, that'd be awesome. Obviously, if you're using your phone, you can keep it there. And I'll be using, again, NASB translation, so if you're using your phone, you can flip to that one. If you have NIV, no worries. Um, you'll see some similarities. You may see some differences in words, um, but, you know, they'll be closely uh, related. So, Pick it up in chapter 6. Now, one thing to remember is when we read the book of Romans like any book in Scripture, we need to consider that it's one big letter, okay? The letter itself has been divided into chapters and verses, of course, but we need to consider it as one long-running letter to this church. So, Paul in, in chapter 5 speaks on a powerful doctrine of justification, meaning that the guilty sinner is guilty for his sin, and he will stand before God answering for that sin. But yet, because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, that guilty sinner will stand justified in front of God for what Christ has done. He took their punishment so that they do not have to face those consequences and they can come into the kingdom of God. They are justified in God's eyes because of what Christ has done. If you look back in chapter 5, you'll see verse 17 says, For if by one transgression, transgression of, of the one, death reigned through the one, much more than those who received an abundance of grace of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Christ Jesus. So in our forefather Adam, our federal headship as human beings, we find death for his sin because we are born under that natural sinful nature, but we find life in Christ. We see in verse 18, he says, So then as one transgression, there resulted in condemnation to all men, and even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to life for all men. So it's Christ that justifies. 
In verse 19, for as though through one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, even through the obedience of one, that many will be made righteous. Righteous. So we were made sinners through Adam, but it's through Christ we were made righteous. This speaks to a teaching called imputation, meaning when we face Christ on that, on that great day, we will stand for our sin, but because of what Christ did, we are imputed his righteousness. We don't earn the righteousness that's worthy to get to heaven. Only Christ has earned that as a man who walked on the earth, fully God, fully man. He was the only one that could obtain that righteousness. But it gets imputed to the believer in him because of God's grace. Amen? So we face that. Paul goes into that teaching in Romans 5. And then he comes to chapter 6. And he's going to deal with some more beautiful truths. Picking it back off of justification. We're going to see him go into regeneration. And then sanctification, meaning regeneration, the, the unbeliever's heart is changed to a believer in Christ. Sanctification, we live to find that holiness that Christ possesses. So, picking up in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? So stop right there. Paul is dealing with abuse to justification. He's dealing with the abuse of this teaching, of the misunderstanding of this teaching. Look at, look at the question again. Are we to continue or willingly sin so that grace may increase? So are we to continue in our sin because we are justified? Are we to continue to willingly break God's law because we're just going to be forgiven? Are we to continue to desire sin because we know his forgiveness? This is a term that's called licensing. This is a term that Christians need to understand. Licensing, meaning I have the license to sin. Why? Because Christ died for me. That's not true. Look how Paul debunks it in verse 2. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul answers this question with a resounding no in the most Pauline way that he can. May it never be. Sin cannot be licensed. Why? Because you died to it. It can't be possible in Paul's eyes. How can you live in it if you've died to it? Think about that term, live in it. To live in something is to be comfortable. We're all comfortable in our homes. We're all comfortable in the situations we're in most of the time. So to live in sin is to be comfortable with sin. To live in sin is to have no conviction in the heart of what the sin is and that we're sinning against God. That's what he's talking about here, to live in sin. And he makes it known that it cannot be possible if you've died to sin and truly been changed by the gospel. Paul then moves on to verse 3, and we see this fleshed out. We see that what this truly means and what this is. Picking up in verse 3. Romans 6, we're going to go through verses 3 through 5. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that Christ, 
So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. Amen. For if we have, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of him in his resurrection. Very powerful verses there. As he speaks to our unity in Christ, as our faith brings us in unity to him. Go back up to verse 3 real quick. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, who is the all of us he's speaking to there? The all of us are those who believe the gospel, who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who died on the cross, paid for the penalty of sin for the believer. All who have faith in him have been baptized into Christ and into his death. Now, you could certainly formulate water baptism to this. It's certainly there. You can see the, the analogy there. But Christ, uh, Paul is speaking more to a spiritual baptism here, a spiritual baptism that has the believer connected to Christ. The heart has been molded to what he's doing, the molding of the work of what Christ did on the cross. So with this unifying baptism, with this unifying connection, when Christ died, we died. As he was buried, so too was your old life. It was buried as well. And when Christ was raised up from the dead, we walk in a newness of life, a new life that sees us, our souls raised by the power of what Christ has done. And because of that newness of life, you now have a drive to obey his commands and a drive to seek him because of what he's done, because you're unified with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen along. But the one who joins himself to the Lord will be one with him in spirit. Colossians 3, uh, verse 3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And of course, one of my favorite verses, Luke 9, verses 23 through 24 Christ speaking to his disciples. If anyone wishes to come after me, one must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake is the one who will save it. We walk in a new life because we are changed by the truth of what Jesus Christ has done. Paul in these verses is telling us what regeneration is. It's a, it's a life of death and sin that hears the power of the gospel that is drawn to him, that is drawn to Christ, that has died because we have thrown away our old life. We've died, buried, that old life is gone, that desire for that old life is gone, and you're raised in a new life just as Christ was died, buried, and resurrected. We're in unity with him because of this. Very encouraging words. So stay, take a break from that for a minute. Just think about your life. Think about when you heard the gospel and you felt your heart changed and God changed your heart. What changed in your life? You will notice change. You will notice things that you've turned from. New desires, new wants, wanting to follow Christ, desiring God because your old life died and your new life has been raised. Think about that. Think about what regeneration looked like in your life. If you would turn with me to John chapter 3, 
And this is a text where Jesus speaks to a Sanhedrin named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, a Sanhedrin during the Roman Empire time, was a Jewish legal council. They were kind of the chief rulers over the Jews at this time. And as we know throughout the Gospels, we see the Pharisees weren't too kind to Jesus. They did not want to submit to his lordship. They wanted, the, they wanted to keep abusing God's law for their own power, for their own manipulation. But Nicodemus himself shows some humbleness here. He goes and he finds Jesus at night, and he approaches him in verse 2. This man came to Jesus, speaking of Nicodemus, by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So we see some humbleness there from Nicodemus. Look how Christ responds. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Our Lord tells us we must be born again to see the kingdom of God. That one must have their hearts changed by the Holy Spirit. That one must be born of the Spirit. This is exactly what Paul has been speaking to us about. That change that comes when the gospel enters your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You don't have to turn there. Paul speaks in this, this part of Scripture about what it looks like to be in a raised life. Chapter 5, verse 17 says this. Therefore, anyone is in Christ. He is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Regeneration is an act of us being united with Christ and walking to that new life. Another extremely important thing, and I think a very powerful thing, we see in this cluster of verses, verses 3 through 5, we see the Trinity at work here. The powerful, almighty Trinity that sets our God apart, that makes the God of the Bible who He is, the Trinity. The Trinity is one true God, Existing in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God has revealed himself in three distinct persons, three distinct persons in Scripture. And many people outside of the Christian faith will use this against the Christian faith, saying it's a contradiction, saying it doesn't make sense, saying how could there be three working as one? But dear Christians, the Trinity is not a contradiction. The Trinity is not confusing. These people who question the Trinity don't see the harmony. They don't see how the Trinity is always working together. Let's look at it. Take the Father. 
God the Father, creator of all, establishes this world, establishes his laws. He establishes his perfect holy laws, a picture of him. You and I break that law because of our nature. But God sends the means to save you from breaking that law. God is the provider and the means of being saved by the law or from the law. And so we see in verse, verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. So the glory of the Father saves you, and he gets the glory for that saving. Then we see God the Son, while being incarnated as a man, still working as God, taking on flesh as a man, living the life that you and I couldn't live to pay for the debt that we owe. God sends the means. God the Father sends the means. Christ carries out the means. He takes the sacrifice. He takes the punishment of the sinner on the cross. He dies, is buried, and is raised again, defeating death. So we have God the Father sending the means, Christ being the means, now the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit carrying the believer out by the means. Holy Spirit enters the believer's heart just as we've seen in John 3, just as we've seen earlier in, in, in Romans 6. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. It drives us to desiring Christ. It desire us, desires us to following God, and it changes the heart of the believer. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working together to bring you to salvation. A beautiful picture of the Trinity. Trinity is not confusing. Trinity is not contradiction, and it is not a tool for the atheist to use against the Christian. No, the Trinity is everything. The Trinity is our Godhead that we serve, and he provides the means for our salvation. Skip on down to Romans chapter 6, or excuse me, skip on down to verse 15, stay in chapter 6 rather. Romans 6, 15, we see Paul give us a Two sides of a coin here. One who is a slave of sin and one who is a slave of righteousness. So what are we being slave, saved from? This idea of being slave, slave, enslaved by sin or enslaved by righteousness. Verses 15 and 16. What then shall we, what then, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know? Do you not know? That when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So Paul tells us you will show who you obey. You will show what you obey. Think about a parent in a grocery store with a child who is not minding, who is ripping things off the shelves and pitching a fit. I've been there. I know the feeling. Okay. That kid is showing who he obeys. At that point in time, he's not obeying his parent. He's obeying himself. He wants to do what he wants to do. Okay. Now, eventually, of course, the parent brings him to obedience, but that's a picture of that. The slave will obey the master. So what does it mean to be a slave of sin? Let's look at both sides of this coin. If you would, go to John 8. I'm going to flip to John 8. We see in this chapter that 
Jesus gives one of his seven famous I am statements, such as I am the good shepherd, I am the way, truth, and the life, I am the vine. And here he says, I am the light of the world, and anyone who comes to me will not walk in darkness. And he's being pressed by unbelieving Jews. He's being questioned by them. Let's pick up in verse 32. And he says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Actually, let's go up to 31. Jesus was saying to these Jews, verse 31, who had believed him, if you continue my word, and you are truly a disciple of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And then they answered to him, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? So they don't even understand this concept. But Jesus answered them in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So these Jews, they don't understand what he's saying. They say, we've never been enslaved. What are you talking about? And Jesus calls them out saying, if you are in the sin, then you're a slave to that sin. If you are controlled by sin, if you have desires other than me, you are enslaved to that. But it is he, Jesus, who can set them free. Skip on down to verse 40, 42. Jesus said to them, if you were God if God were your father, remember they said Abraham was their father earlier in this, earlier in this chapter. Jesus said, if, you, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Is it because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father the devil. Very powerful words. Let me repeat this again. You are of your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father? He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and a father of lies. Jesus puts it plainly to these Jews. You are seeking your own self-righteousness. You are seeking your father who is the devil. The key here is the slave will serve his master. And from the text above, the linchpin here is Jesus. Either they are of Christ, either they are submitting to Christ, or they are submitting to their father, Satan, who ultimately is their own desires. They deny to serve Jesus and serve their own manipulation of the law. The slave of sin is honestly a slave to himself. He is his master. He seeks the desires of himself and looks to please himself however he want, wishes, whether it's inside or outside the law of God. Look at these Jews. They claimed Abraham to be their father. They claimed a man of God, Abraham, to be their father, but yet they wanted Jesus dead. They didn't want to give up their own desires. They did not want to submit to the lordship of Christ. A slave to sin is his own master. And at his core, the slave to sin at its core is idolatry. He wants to serve himself more than God. He wants to serve his own desires more than God. Chapter three, verse, or Colossians chapter, chapter 3, verse 5. 
Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. It's wanting what what you want more than what God commands. It's desiring to please the carnal mind, to please the heart, and the slave to sin. Having no regard that God has offered life, or the, the life that God has ordained based on his law. God's law is good. God knows what's best. And yet the slave of sin runs from that. And what does Paul say back in Romans 6? What does the slave of sin lead to? For the slave of sin, a slave's obedience, either in sin resulting in death. And then we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Wages aren't earned, or excuse me, wages are earned. They're not freely given. We earn our punishment for sin. So that's what a slave of sin leads to. It's your own desires leading to death. Now let's flip to the other side of the coin. What is the slave to obedience in Christ? Turn to John 15. John 15, verses 9 to 11. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He's, they've just finished their last supper. They're um, on their way. They're getting ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will pray, and he will actually dr- uh, pray so intensely that he'll drip sweats of blood. And then following that, he'll be stood up on a fake trial, and he'll be crucified. But Jesus shares a moment of love with his disciples. He shares a time of communion with them. Look at John 15, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Wow. Christ tells his disciples that if you obey me, you will abide in my love that I have for you. If you obey my commandments, your joy will will be made complete in me. Folks, we find joy in Christ's love, and we find joy in his obedience. His disciples were bonded to him through love. Christ's coming sacrifice and their obedience to him was the bond built on love. Skip on down to verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. One lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Stop and think about that. Christ calls his disciples his friends. He lays down his life for his friends. His friends do what he commands because of this. Because they are no longer just considered slaves, but they are Jesus, but they are friends. 
Jesus says that he shares all that the Father has given him with them. He shares all of the, the joy of salvation with them. He lays down his life for him because they are friends. The dialogue between Christ and his disciples is built on one foundational truth, and that is love. Obedience in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, trust in him means that you are abiding in his love. His love for you goes so deep that he would lay his life down for your salvation. Obedience in, in Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ not only gives you the right to call him Lord, but to call him friend because he has sacrificed for you. If you love Christ, you'll have faith, you'll believe the gospel, and you'll keep his commandments to the best of your ability, not for the sake of being good, not for the sake of being holy, but for the sake of what he did for you and what his love for you is. I think back to um, a couple things. One, I think back to when I played sports, specifically wrestling. We had such a deep bond on that team. In fact, one of my coaches right here, Jim Houston, our discipleship pastor, one of the great coaches we had on staff, we didn't just do the things they asked for them because we wanted to win. Obviously, we wanted to win. We didn't just do the things that they asked from us because we trusted them. We loved them. And we knew that they loved us. You could see it. The way they sacrificed, the way they gave themselves for us, we loved them. And so we would run through a brick wall for them. Same thing with my football coaches. We loved them. We would do anything for them. I also think about the story in uh, Daniel between Shadrach, and you don't have to turn there, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three men who were being thrown into a fiery furnace because why? Because they did not worship the gods that King Nebuchadnezzar had laid before them. They would not serve that God. They would only serve our God, the triune God of the Bible. And what was their punishment? Thrown into a fiery furnace. Well, what did King Nebuchadnezzar say? He jumped out of his seat and said, look in the fire. These men are untouched, unharmed, but there is something in the fire protecting them that looks like the son of a god. Christ. Picture of Christ. It's out of love. It's Christianity. The gospel. It's built on love. So what is a slave of obedience to Christ? Loved, friend, and connected. Real quickly, Romans 8, and I don't want to get too far into Romans 8 because I don't want to, I don't want to take all the good stuff from Pastor Frank. He's going he's gonna to do a great job with this. This is such, such a beautiful chapter. But in Romans 8, 37-39, I do want to read you this. But in all things... In all these things, we overwhelmingly concur through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principle, principle to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything other thing created will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing that will separate you. If you're drawn to Christ, and he is your Lord, nothing Nothing can separate you from him. That's what a slave of obedience to Christ is. Leads 
to life. Newness of life. So now let's transition to chapter 7. We're going to be doing a short portion of chapter 7. What you're going to find in chapter 7 is in the early parts of the chapter, Paul speaks about how we're freed from the law, how we're freed from the punishment of the law, freed from the traditions of the law. However, don't get that confused. We still keep God's moral law. You still obey your parents. It's still sinful to lie. It's still sinful to murder, obviously. We keep God's law, but we keep it on a different standard because of a love from Christ and what he's done. Okay? Understand what Paul's saying there. We're not freed from just being morally uh, free to, to break any commandment we want. We still honor God's moral law. But I want you to see in verses 7, 13, and 14, you're going to find what you see here will feel like a direct confliction with each other. You'll feel like these two are button heads from this beautiful language in chapter 6 of regeneration, new life, seeking Christ, desiring Him, and then we come to 7, and we see Paul's language. Let's read verses 13 and 14. Therefore, did that which is good because of death for me be a cause of death for me, excuse me, may it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, sold into the bondage of sin. You may be thinking to yourself, didn't he just talk about freedom from this? Didn't he just talk about living this new life and walking in this new life, and now he's saying he's, a bond, he's in bondage to sin? What Paul's telling us here is, when we see God for who he is, we, are, we see ourselves for who we are. He is perfect, holy, righteous. And what are we? Sinful. We fall short of God's glory because of our sin in our natural state. Yes, we are freed from sin in the sense of, yes, we walk in a newness of life. Yes, we are, uh, we are in his death, burial, and resurrection to a new life. But we are still here on this earth in a fallen world, in a fallen creation. Paul sees God for who he is when he sees the law. The law of God showing his perfect standard. And then Paul's comparing it to his own heart. Look back, let's read through some more that you don't have, you just kind of can scroll through with me. I'm just going to read some verses that shows kind of his anguish. 17, verse 17, so now no longer I am the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh, the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. And then he goes far as to say in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of sin? Take a look real quick at Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah has a similar experience to what Paul's having. He sees the glory of God. Isaiah has a vision of God. And watch what happens. Isaiah chapter 6 we're going to go verses 
going to go through verses 2 through 6. The seraphim, which were the most glorious angels in heaven, the seraphim stood above him, having, each having six wings, with two covering his face, two covering his feet, and two he flew. And one called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. And then Isaiah, then I said, this is Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I am living among a people of unclean lips. For the eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. That's his reaction when he sees God. God is so glorious, so above, that when he sees God, he sees himself in his sinful state. Paul admits that the law is spiritual, and yet he is still of the flesh. Although in chapter 6 we see dying to ourselves, we see raised to a new life, Paul sees that we still, he's still under his fallen nature. Now where does this fallen nature come from? Genesis 3, the fall in the garden, Adam and Eve sinning against God, which brings the curse. And it's very important we understand this. We have to understand where we come from and why this world has fallen and why we are falling. But all this to show you, before we do that, let's, let's read Galatians 5. 5, 16, and 17. We'll see what Paul is fleshing out here. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. He desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, going into 18, you are not under the law. So what Paul shows us here is the flesh, the flesh that you are in, and that new heart that's been changed by the Holy Spirit, they're going to conflict with each other. They're going to fight against each other. Dear Christian, this is a war you and I will fight. Don't kid yourself. This is a war that you and I will fight until Christ comes or we're called to glory. But I want to encourage you this morning. That's not a bad thing. Why is it not a bad thing that you feel a fight in your spirit with the flesh and the spirit? Folks, it's because you are born of the spirit. If there is a fight in your heart, if there is a conviction of sin in your heart, if you feel a, a strong desire to seek God, but you feel a fight in your heart with your flesh, that means the Spirit is inside you. That means you are born of the Spirit. Be encouraged, Christian. I want to also give you some more encouragement. You're not alone in this fight. You will never be alone in this fight. Because as Jesus told his disciples in, in John 15, we won't turn there, but he tells them, I'm sending a helper for you, and it's the Holy Spirit. 
We live in this fallen world, this fallen creation, but there is one thing that can guide you and will guide you, and it's the Holy Spirit. That alarm in your heart, that alarm in your conscience that tells you, flee from sin, run to me, run to Christ, that's the Holy Spirit guiding you. If you will lean on that Spirit, he, the Holy Spirit will guide you from sin. It will draw you from it. And though you fight a war in your flesh, the Spirit will lead you to Christ and lead you to God. You're not alone in the fight against the flesh. Another thing we have, the infallible, perfect, holy Word of God that, yes, written by men, but under the inspiration of God. This Word is perfect, as 1 Timothy says, that it's perfect for teaching, perfect for reproof and guidance, the Holy Word of God is our objective standard that we as Christians stand on. Look at Matt. Well, you don't have to turn here. I'm just going to go through Matthew 4, which shows Christ himself facing temptation. And what does he turn to? Then Jesus, verse 1, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered as it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Christ shows us that the Word of God is what we live on. Deuteronomy, he, he, he took quotes back from Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 8, when God had provided Israel, who were in the wilderness, he provided bread for them to show them that you can trust me. We're in the wilderness, and God has given us our bread, and it's this word. This word will nourish you. This word will lead you. In the face of sin, this word will guide you from that sin. And in this fallen world, this word will guide you how to handle it. This word will also encourage you that, yes, you'll face trials, but God has sent a helper through the Holy Spirit. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save you from your sin. And one day, he will defeat evil once and for all, and there will be no pain, no suffering, and we will reign with him as believers in his son, Christ. The word of God is everything for us. We stand on it as Christians. So what do we do with all this? One side of the coin, in verses six, or chapter 6 and 7, one side of the coin, you've died to yourself, you've died to your old life, you've thrown away that sin, it's buried and gone forever, you've resurrected just as Christ has resurrected to a new life in your heart and soul, but yet, on the other side, there's still that fight with the flesh. On one hand, you have a new desire to find God, to seek his law, to find joy in him, just as he tells his disciples to find joy and obedience in him. But on the other hand, we feel the fall of the flesh, the desire to run to the flesh. What intersects in the middle of these things? What reconciles these things? It's Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus Christ alone. It's Jesus Christ who was sent by God the Father on this earth 
to live the perfect life that you and I will never live so that where we are not good enough, He was good for you. And so that we have broken God's law and sinned against Him, He has taken your punishment on the cross. He died for the punishment of sin. And as your faith believes in Him, as you trust that power, as you trust that gospel, you are saved from the punishment of sin. Christ reconciles in the middle of this. As we fight this war of the flesh, we desire Him. Well, He was good for you. So you keep looking to Him. And as we know we've sinned, as we know we've broken God's law, we don't have to carry the guilt because He took the result of the guilt and He took the punishment. So my encouragement to you this morning in your sanctification and in your flesh Look to Christ. Look to Christ. I know that sounds simple and maybe a little too easy. But don't look to Christ to be good out of your own goodness. Look to Christ because he was good for you. Look to Christ because he is your good example. He, obedience in him, brings you joy. And in your struggles, in your sin, in your fights against the flesh, look to him because he paid for that punishment. He's taken that sin. You don't have to carry the guilt. He did on the cross. So keep desiring him. Keep looking to Christ and not of yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and seek him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you short of your glory. We see how holy you are through your word. We see how perfect you are through your word. We thank you for being that. We thank you for being a God who even in our sin, even in our shortcomings, you love us. You sent an opportunity of means to be saved. And you sent that through your son, Jesus Christ. God, you also have sent a helper, the Holy Spirit, that will guide us through this life, that will guide us from our sin, that will seek you, that will seek obedience in your law, and that we will find joy and comfort in you. Lord, my biggest prayer this morning is that we don't look to ourselves for help, that we don't look to ourselves for self-righteousness, that we only look to you, your Son. Because we know that he lived the life that we could not live to pay for sin. and We know that he carried out the payment of that sin on the cross. So Lord, in all the times that we face in our flesh, in the world, just let us look to the cross. Let us throw ourselves to that. Let us lean on the work on the cross. And let us seek the Spirit as it guides us. God, we thank you. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen.